This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, this week we're discussing creating optimal post-acute care networks in the new value paradigm. Our guest is Ian Giuliano, a vocal proponent for a more efficient and transparent healthcare industry. Prior to founding Trella Health, Ian was CEO of Home Care CRM, a census growth platform for the post-acute care industry, among many other impressive corporate leadership roles spanning his successful career. Eric, what I love about this episode today and our listeners are going to hear is that value-based care and PAC network optimization is a personal calling for Ian. And his company, Trella Health, is dedicated to creating optimal care networks that yield superior outcomes and greater efficiencies. Employing the sophisticated longitudinal analytics on its massive proprietary database, Trella enables providers and payers to compete and thrive in the new world of value-based care. Well, let's learn more about creating optimal post-acute care networks in the new value paradigm as Ian Giuliano joins us this week in the Race to Value. Ian Giuliano, welcome to the Race to Value podcast. We're so happy to have you this week. Thank you, Eric. Uh, Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, Ian, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And before we get into these daunting challenges of post-acute care partnerships and network optimization. I wanted to set a frame for our listeners today about your company and how it's a driving force in the value economy. In 2015, you founded Trella Health to address the highly variable performance and inefficient patient routing you witnessed in the post-acute space. You saw firsthand how physicians and facilities didn't seem to have insight into which post-acute providers offered their patients the best outcomes. Conversely, home health agencies and hospices didn't have a way to objectively demonstrate to potential referral sources the value that they provided. And as a trailblazing entrepreneur, you took the charge to lead and quickly assembled a team of people who shared your mission of increasing transparency in healthcare using data. And upon starting the company, you found out that CMS was planning to make uh, Medicare claims available, as I understand, to a select group of entrepreneurs and researchers. And your team applied in that process and found out, going through a pretty rigorous training and application process, Trella earned the innovator status, and you were able to access all of the data in CMS's virtual research data center. And you've created, as I understand, a massive proprietary database that sources directly from the CMS chronic conditions warehouse and includes all the part A and part B claims and for traditional fee-for-service Medicare beneficiaries, and it has all the Medicare Advantage claims data. Can you tell us more about your HIT company and how it employs sophisticated longitudinal analytics on this massive database to help providers and payers compete and thrive in this new world of value-based care? Yeah, absolutely. So just to give you a little more perspective, I think you'll enjoy it. I happen to go to the same undergrad as administrator Slavit, 
at the time. So I started to very gently stalk him, I guess, with examples of, you know, hey, value-based care, and this is in early 2015, value-based care is amazing. And your efforts to educate the consumers are amazing, but we need more B2B solutions because look what this hospital did. Look what that hospital did. They don't know any better. And I think the one that got him to to finally refer me to the chief data officer at the time, Niall Brennan of CMS, was I sent him an example of a rural hospital in the Midwest who was sending patients to two SNFs, A and B, and A had almost a 5X readmit rate, 30-day readmit rate of B. And the hospital was literally saying, you know, we sent three to A on Monday, we'll make it up to B or vice versa on Tuesday. And my thought was, you know, as value-based care really takes off, uh, this information is obviously going to be very valuable. So I sent that to him and he put me in touch with Niall Brennan. And I met Niall Brennan in um, August of 2015. I, I kind of started to gently stalk him, I guess. And, and they were, I didn't know this, but they were just about to launch the VRDC program. So it wasn't so much the facility data that was the challenge. It was building the trust and aligning our goals with CMS for them to trust us with the carrier file, the physician data. That's something they do not make available public. And I think the reason for that is at the end of the day, they're a payer and they're very sensitive to other entities having very easy access to physicians. And next thing you know, for example, they could be paying five times for pharma in a couple of years of what they're paying today. So the application was quite long. We had to go through, I had to go through ethics training. I had to go through obviously data security training. It was about a 60 page application. We had to justify every variable and why we should have access to it. And then we had to build the trust with CMS directly that we would be a good partner. And as a result, we were one of the first approved in the VRDC program. But not only that, we were one of the very few that was approved for 100% Part A and 100% Part B updated quarterly. Since then, they have made available Medicaid data. It's two years old. They have also made Medicare Advantage data available, although that's three years old and CMS is looking to update that. And then what we did was we went out and we purchased private claim data, which covered about 75% of the over 65 commercial population, almost all Medicare Advantage, and about 50% of the under 65 commercial data in the U.S., and that allowed us actually to just, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, we received the qualified entity designation in CMS and nationwide. And you, you are actually the first to hear this, but there's 11 entities in the U.S. that have national QE status. And that's where they take that same data that you were working on in the VRDC environment and they, they ship it to you so that you can load it in your own environment. And that allows you to do a lot more than what you can in the VRDC. So uh, we're super excited about that. But when you look at our database now with over 90% of all 65 plus, all of Medicaid and half of the under 65 commercial in the U.S., you know, you're looking, I think, at a top five medical claim database in the United States, and we're super excited about that. So that's kind of the history of the data. The reason, and, and just to put it in perspective, we our mission was always to create more transparency so that better decisions could be made, resulting in improved outcomes and reduced costs. And we're very proud of the fact that, you know, we have over 15,000 users today that are accessing our system to, for the first time, compete based on performance and outcomes in great detail and other quality metrics, but also on cost. And that we think will really be an important component to making value-based care all that it can be. Wow. Congratulations on the QE status and being able to participate in the VRBC program at the level that you guys are. It's really impressive. I'm curious to start with something that's a challenge for a lot of our listeners out there, and that's impacting PAC utilization to improve patient care and costs. I'll just say CMS has been an amazing partner. Words don't express our gratitude for the opportunity that that they have created. And the wonderful thing is that we're now in our, our third administration and 
everyone uh, sees the importance of data and making this data available to make a real difference in healthcare. And we love to tell them that, you know, we've got hospital systems, post-acute providers, ACOs, you name it. We've got them now using our data to make better decisions. And it's a huge source of gratification on our part that we are able to take the trust that they put into us that particularly Niall Brennan and Andy Slavitt and others put into us that we were able to develop something meaningful from it. And we've told them many times that we're very grateful for them doing this. And it's not a day that I don't forget that they put an incredible amount of trust into us to, to give us such a large database. And every request we've had since to expand the data, add more users as we've grown, they've just been phenomenal, phenomenal partners. I'd love to talk about impacting PAC utilization. It's a challenge that a lot of our value-based care leaders out there who are listening to this interview right now are finding it challenging to really impact PAC utilization to improve patient care and costs. For example, many physician-led ACLs find that when their patients are discharged from the hospital, the hospitalists always refer patients to the PAC facilities that are owned by the health system in order to prevent system leakage. That can result in ineffective transitions of care and higher costs. And the costs across the PAC continuum are so varied, which makes it ripe for patients to stay too long in an inappropriate setting. And it's such an important problem to solve for in value-based care. Medicare pays on average $2,500 in 30 days after discharge for each patient who received home health care, as compared with 11,000 for those admitted to a SNF and 15,000 for those cared for in a rehabilitative hospital. Post-acute care is the largest driver of overall Medicare spending variation. And without transparent market-wide data with longitudinal analytics, a comprehensive network, relationships with hospitals, it seems like almost an insurmountable challenge to overcome. And so let's start by talking about many of the less mature ACOs, which are therefore focused on things like primary care access, ED diversion, high-risk management as low-hanging fruit because they couldn't really build an effective playbook to tackle the challenges of ensuring appropriate care settings post-discharge. So for those ACOs out there who are trying to figure out how to build a post-acute care network, what advice would you provide them as to how they can better manage variation and PAC costs due to poorly coordinated transitions? And can you share with our listeners some success stories with ACO partnerships that optimize the full spectrum of care? Sure. So I'm going to start off by, first of all, acknowledging your point. Hospital home health agencies, in the past, home health, the most lucrative type of care generally in home health was the, the rehab, you know, kind of the, the therapies after a TKR or a hip replacement, something like that. And hospitals knew that those type of, of, of therapists were, were paid more, and it tended to be an easier case with less cost. Now, some of the recent billing has changed that, some new strategies of CMS, but what you have is you have hospitals that when they owned home health agencies that for many years kind of cherry-picked those type of younger, healthier patients that didn't have as many chronic comorbidities, and they, they got, in, in theory, good at that type of, of care. And so you want to be mindful. Now the structure of the payments has changed. And you could say that some of the hospital discharges that, that are now being made, you could have hospitals going after some of those more difficult patients that have a higher severity and more comorbidities. So my concern has always been that if you have independent or large enterprise home health agencies that have, have a history of, of caring and producing better results for these more severe patients. You don't want the necessarily the hospital-owned home health agencies kind of shifting gears and going after those patients. So that's one example. Another example I'd give you is, you know, SNFs will tell you one of their biggest competitors is hospital-owned ERFs. And that's because the, the ERF is a more inpatient rehab facility is a more expensive setting but hospitals need the revenue and they've invested in developing these wings. So they will route those patients there. So I think there's a lot of traps or, or issues to be mindful of when you're looking at post-acute strategies. But what I would say is the most formative is I feel that as a nation, we have been kind of overly myopically focused 
on the cost of a post-acute setting versus the impact and the cost trajectory of the patient. And so if I give you a perfect example, we, we spoke at the Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, he had a task force on healthcare. And we gave an example of two skilled nursing facilities down the street, A and B, they're almost across the street from each other at five minutes from the Capitol. They both received patients from Brady, a safety net hospital. And if you isolated their most severe fee-for-service patients, highest acuity of which they had about 50 each, and you risk adjusted the cost from the day they entered the SNF for one year out, every cost they had, you risk adjusted using the HCC model, which as your listeners should know is how it's generally the standard because that's how CMS determines the advantage capitation rates. And you took A and you said that A averaged about $26,000 less in total cost of care than B risk adjusted. So if you were just to narrow that gap with that 50 patients, you could be looking at over a million dollars annually in savings and much better outcomes. Now, what A did when you look at the data was A consumed slightly more SNF than B with these patients. But what they also did is they consumed almost five times as much home health as B. Where on the other side, B consumed over twice as much inpatient and then the explosion of professional claims that goes with it. So what I would tell anyone that's, that's bearing the risk is their knee-jerk reaction could be, oh, A is spending a lot more on post-acute, so I should cut them out. But what you really want to look at is that A was developing much better care plans and care path strategies, and they were giving those very severe patients a softer landing and a longer landing, and it was really paying off in the long run because that 26000 of risk-adjusted savings that included those additional post-acute care costs. That's an extreme example, but I could give you an example of one of our clients, a large enterprise in South Carolina, and they used almost double as the home health as their competitor, yet they saved inclusive of that over $8,000 per patient for a wide variety of, of higher severity diagnostic categories. So another one that I could tell you is hospice. You know, with our data, you, know, you can go in and find a cardiologist that's affiliated with a hospital or an ACO. And you could look and we'll often see that that cardiologist had 500 mortalities in a year. And only 10% of those mortalities got hospice on time, which in this case, we're very generously saying one month prior to death. If you were just to move another 10%, another 50 or so of those patients into hospice on time, because those patients that got hospice late, they averaged one additional inpatient setting visit that last month of life. You could be saving between one to $2 million driving it out of the system just by doing that. So what I would say is that it hasn't quite been fair that a lot of the savings that we've generated have been on post-acute. And we talk a lot about the variability and cost of post-acute. What I would say is, a hospital kind of fixes the problem or stabilizes it, but the cost trajectory or the care, the outcome or care trajectory that patient is put on in the future is often determined very much by the post-acute. So what we would implore those making the decisions to do is don't just focus on the cost of the post-acute setting. Look at the return on your investment and make smart decisions there. You know, am I being penny wise and pound foolish? Well, Ian, I, I wanted to explore this concept of optimizing these networks around post-acute care and thinking a lot about our members in the ACLC, those that are more mature, they're taking risk, they're next-gen ACOs or these new direct contracting entities where they're managing capitated risk. And they've already initiated this network building process around post-acute care. And they're at a point now where they're really thinking about optimization. These groups are, are trying to figure out how can we dig into the data and look for more trends that impact the overall cost. They're seeing a lot of patients, for example, that may be admitted to SNFs and readmitted to hospital and then admitted back to skilled nursing. And they're trying to get patients home health services after release from the SNF to reduce the readmission rates and 
decreased cost of care. And as part of that optimization effort, these advanced risk-bearing entities, they're looking for specific case mixes that could use improvement and they're assessing network performance across all their different populations to minimize gaps in care. And they're, they're trying to address overflow where their current PAC partners don't have capacity for referral volume, and they may be thinking about narrowing their network or creating a tiered system to improve performance. And then they're also trying to create these scorecards where they can look at facility-specific metrics like number of Medicare patients treated or PMPM or PMPY and average length of stay and readmission rates. Needless to say, all of that is a Herculean undertaking. And I wanted to ask you, you know, how does Trella Health provide its ACO and DCE clients with the data transparency they need to see the whole picture and identify areas for improvement and create a comprehensive network that works for their patients and their goals? Yeah, that's a great question. So to start off, before we get into which post-acute, I would first focus on maybe the biggest opportunity is any post-acute. If you look at, and you can use our data to do this, you can look at it graphically and have the numbers. You can isolate for a hospital system by acuity level or diagnostic category, all of kind of the concentric circles of patient flows. And you will see that it's kind of staggering, but for a typical, even the really good academic hospitals, they're over two thirds of their inpatient discharges that meet our high acuity guidelines receive no post-acute care whatsoever. Now, what's interesting is, is that almost a third of those are back in the hospital within two days, literally. And we're talking about, I don't want to name names, but let's take one academic hospital, a very prestigious in the Northeast, and they might have 3,200 or so high acuity inpatient fee-for-service discharges in a year. And guess what? A thousand of those are back in the hospital in two days and they receive no post-acute instructions or care whatsoever. And then on top of that, you know, an important point to make to the hospital is that you have over half of those patients didn't go back to your facility. They went to a different one. So it's not all revenue, you know, back in, in anyone's pocket per se. So I think that that is a super important to pick the right post-acute providers, but I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that you could make an argument that probably all of those patients, those thousand that came back in two days, probably should have had some form of post-acute, and it probably would have saved a lot of money and, and had a lot better outcomes. So just don't want to lose sight of that. You, you talk about access and having the access. I, I think what is really important, and you're able to use our data to do this, is identify in various geographies which post-acute providers are the best performers, both in their own episode cost, but more importantly, in that long-term cost trajectory and where are the drivers. You're able to see that very clearly with our data. So what I would say is when you find an outstanding SNF or an outstanding home health agency for a high acuity, let's say circulatory patient with certain chronic comorbidities, which you can identify in all of our data, then you want to make sure you have access. And I can tell you that most of these post-acute providers, you can't necessarily do monetary rewards as a traditional ACO, but you do have more flexibility as a DCE. But what you can do as an ACO to make sure that you get access there is to go in and tell them that if they accommodate you, you will provide a steady stream of patients for them and the right type of patients, the ones that they are specialized in and the ones that they are targeting. And you explain to them that access is very important to you. You're picking them for a reason. And when you start to engage in that type of partnership, I think that will make a big difference because I think many of these better post-acute providers are, are having a hard time even getting on the referral partner's radar. Once you do that, you then go in and you say, okay, now we're going to monitor your performance and we're going to look at how you're doing compared to other providers. But what we really want to do is we don't want to be penny wise and pound foolish. We want you all, you all know the best post-acute care paths and care plans. We want you to be able to determine what makes the most sense, but know that we expect a return on our investment. If you want two extra episodes or whatever for that patient, great, 
But what we want to see is we want to see that that's really paying off in the long run. So, and our data allows you to do all of that, to be able to monitor that performance and say, we've given you more latitude, but you're producing the results or you're not. And if you're not producing the results, we will shift our volume elsewhere. So being very mindful and, and open and communicative about your expectations, the progress and what the ramifications are, I think goes a long, long way for developing the right post-acute provider network. And I would also say another thing, it's not necessarily about narrowing the network. It's about finding the right network that meets all of the specialized needs to get the best in class for all of the different categories of patients that they have. That's more important than having the typical MA approach where, hey, we've got every provider we can, or the typical sometimes ACO approach where we've really narrowed it down so it's more manageable. What we would say instead is identify who's best at which patient's and make sure that they are in your network and that you have a tight relationship with them and you very clearly outlined expectations, goals, and how you're gonna to work together. And then the last thing is you've got to train the physicians. You know, the physicians have so much influence over the patient decisions that really showing them the data and, and explaining to them why it is in the best interest of their patients to get that post-acute care and providing them guidance on where they should go, there's still an aspect of patient choice, and we acknowledge that, but the physicians have a huge influence on that. And, you know, if you position it as you can go to this SNF and be 30% more likely to be back in the hospital in, in 30 days, or you can go to that SNF and be less likely, a lot of times a patient's going to say, I, I really don't want to go back to the hospital if I can avoid it. I think our data allows you to go in and look at the patient flows of, of your ACO or of a system or even of a plan. And you're able to see all those patient flows. And you're able to identify the big gaps in care where they're not receiving any care or the wrong type of care and make adjustments. But then you're also able to, in each of those categories, drill down into who are the providers, how are they doing, and where can I get the optimal performance, not only in 30-day readmits, but 90-day hospitalizations, one-year total cost of care, if you want. There's a variety of metrics. And I know I keep saying it, but don't just look at the cost of the post-acute, look at the results. Ian, I'd love to get your perspective on the future of the skilled nursing industry. You know, it seems that ACLs have gotten a bad rap in that sector historically, but now we're at this point where there's more interest from SNFs and joining forces with groups of doctors and hospitals and other healthcare providers to really embrace value-based purchasing models, especially with the pandemic having decimated occupancy now may be the right time for SNF providers to reconsider branching out from their traditional silos and work more closely with these systems, even going so far as sharing financial risk. Now, you've just spoken about Trella Health and presented data that showed SNFs leading the pack in terms of quality outcomes. And you said that migration away from SNFs is actually hurting outcomes. So as we think about this case study you mentioned, looking at the 3,300 or so high acuity fee-for-service patients that flow through the University of Pennsylvania system annually. We see that patients that were not treated in nursing homes received worse care, and 63% of their patients were not getting post-acute care, and over a fourth of all those patients were going back to the hospital. That's almost 1,000 patients that in one health system alone should have gone to a SNF. And I want to explore this a little bit further with you. As we think about the rationale for sending higher acuity patients into a SNF setting and how that promotes better adherence for that class of patients versus home health. The question comes down to this. What do you see for the future of the skilled nursing industry in relationship to value-based care? The first thing is we are seeing a huge interest by SNFs and other post-acute providers in having greater ACO data. And we are getting a lot of those, particularly SNFs, buying our Mosaic product, which is actually designed principally for ACOs today, but they love to be able to see those insights in how to best partner with ACOs. And they are, they are very keen on that. The performance of SNFs in terms of hospitalization rates 
has improved almost across the board. And what we think is we think there's a large impact of value-based care is having that. Now, I'm not saying every SNF did it, but you have to remember that there's a lot of interesting quirks in the SNF reimbursement system that maybe in the past incented behaviors that weren't optimal for the patient or optimal for you know, the taxpayer, such as the big drop after 20 days from you know, Medicare to Medicaid reimbursement. I think that's uh, increasingly declining. SNFs are increasingly really focusing on results via value-based care, and it's having an impact. We have some SNFs that even go so far as to buy our home health module because they want to know what home health agencies they should discharge their patients to, to make sure that they're getting the best results for their referral partners. I would say that, um, so we're really heartened to see that improvement in performance. For years, we have seen the volume of inpatient discharges or the percent dedicated to SNFs decline. And we always assumed home health was the big gainer in that, and they are, but we also noticed that IRF's hospital-owned in particular have gained ground as well. And so they are another competitor of SNFs also. And were I an ACO, I would be quite mindful of any time a hospital recommends a hospital IRF, I would want to take a look and make sure that a SNF wasn't more appropriate. So what really hurt the SNFs, I think more than the SNF side of the business, because Actually, their average length of stay went up, and in some cases, their census did not decrease. And not only that, CMS gave them, during this very difficult time, a very judicious boost in reimbursement. What really hurt them, a lot of them, greatly, was the occupancy rates on the long-term care. Uh, because a lot of SNFs are integrated with long-term care facilities. And I heard one provider say, you know, our SNF business wasn't that bad during COVID, to be honest, but our long-term care pre-COVID, I mean, the occupancy rates were in like 92%. And in during the height of COVID, they were down at 72%. And, you know, when you think about that, that, you know, it's only one or 2% in occupancy levels that can lead to profitability and positive cash flow. To drop 20 percentage points in occupancy is just devastating. Now, they say that now they're back to the mid-80s level in terms of occupancy, but it's still not where it was. And they're really doing some innovative things to try to address that. So I think in a lot of cases, those integrated SNFs felt a lot more pain on the long-term care. We talked about home health versus SNF, and what we have found is that as the volume has shifted more and more to home health, the average adherence rate of a SNF patient is about 85%. So if they're instructed to get SNF care, 85% of the time, we will see a resulting SNF claim. They went and got the care. With home health, it's closer to 60% or it's in the 60s. And you know that's substantially lower. And I think a big reason for that is, is home health is a lot more voluntary. Some patients are wary of strangers coming into their home. Some patients want to just hide and smoke again or do whatever you know, unhealthy behaviors they're doing. There's a lot of reasons, but when you're taking someone from the hospital to the SNF, you're going to have a better adherence rate. And I think it's an important part of home health performance that often gets overlooked. If I'm sending patients to my home health agency, I want that home health agency making sure that we work together to, to ensure those patients got their home health care. But so what's happening is, as that volume's flowing from SNF to home health, and you have lower adherence rates, you're seeing less patients receiving their post-acute care. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't discharge to home health anymore. What I'm saying is, I think there's kind of a knee-jerk reaction to care at home, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. But I would also say that particularly when you're going up the acuity scale, particularly when you have any signs of depression or mental health issues, and particularly when you're looking at lower socioeconomics, if you will, I would be mindful that the adherence rates for home health tend to drop. So if they're very sick patients, what we find is we find that the cost differential of post-acute versus no post-acute and good post-acute performance over time it increases with greater acuity, the variability, and it increases with greater time. So in the long run, if you have a patient that you want to put on a good cost trajectory, be mindful of the adherence question as well. 
And is this a type of patient that's going to be diligent and open to a home health episode? Or is this a patient that I'd be better off paying that extra money and putting into a sniff? Because I know that no post-acute care is a lot worse than paying that additional fee for sniff care. So that's some of the things that we think about a lot when we're deciding what is best. I think number one is making sure patients that are not appropriate for ERF and more appropriate for skilled nursing go into the skilled nursing and to make sure that those patients that could be home health appropriate, but we view as an adherence risk and their high acuity, high cost, reconsidering that equation and putting them back into SNFs. Now, what we think is we think that, yes, SNFs are absolutely looking at more and more performance-based care. They've upped their game, no question, in terms of quality. The data shows it. And so as they are doing that, and they're looking at, they're looking more and more at how can I create a great care plan after my discharge to make sure we're getting the best results long term. So I think there's a, you know, a great opportunity for ACOs and SNFs to partner in a more comprehensive way to really drive better outcomes and lower costs. Well, Ian, I wanted to also talk a little bit more about the home health setting and some of the implications there in value. And you made great reference to that, but I'm thinking about some of their operational challenges. Home health agencies have very slim margins, even though their agencies are running pretty lean. And yeah, because of the episodic mentality of a fee-for-service model, they're often encouraged to crank through as many patients as possible. And many home health agencies don't have enough nurses and they're stacking way too many episodes. And I read an interview you did where you were speaking on that issue, and you discussed this concept of the home health care vacuum that's created when comparing 30-day hospitalization rates versus 90-day hospitalization rates for high-acuity circulatory and respiratory patients. And I wanted to ask you if you could explain that particular challenge of the episodic structure and the care vacuum that leads to avoidable readmissions. And also, I would love to hear more from you about some of the challenges that you think the home health industry is facing, such as value capture with ACO partners, nurse staff challenges, incomplete referrals, and establishing high-value partnerships with risk-bearing entities. How should the home health sector evolve to meet the needs of the emerging value paradigm, and what role does technology play in that? You're absolutely right. There is a massive nursing shortage, and home health does have slim margins. I think that for home health to be successful in the future, they, to your point, they need to begin to capture more of the value and they need to rethink sometimes how they deliver care and they need to be compensated for it. And they, and they need to think, I, I think, begin to become more patient managers, managers of the patients, able to do interventions, things like that. And I, I remember a story somebody told me a few years back, there was a patient in a hospital that needed a heart transplant. And typically CMS today and, and the Advantage plans, they'll only pay for a few days of care at the hospital. After that, it's on the hospital. And so this patient sat for a couple of months in a very expensive setting, uh, you know, in the hospital with no re associated revenue. And it wasn't a large hospital. And it's like, you know, one or two patients like that can singularly dent that hospital's financial statement. And the home health agency worked really hard with the hospital to design a care plan where they would stabilize that patient that was in desperate need of a heart transplant at home and care for them until the proper matching organ was identified. And they then successfully stabilized that patient, I think, for three or four months until the correct heart arrived and went in, that patient went back into the hospital and had a successful transplant. And the home health agency was very proud, and rightfully so. They charged $4,500 a month for that. And you know, my response was, that's incredible. Please tell me you worked out a deal with the hospital to capture some of those savings, because you were probably saving them, who knows what, 100 grand a month? I, I, can't, I can't even imagine. And you know, they kind of looked sheepishly and said no, and they're just not, they're just not wired to think that way. And I think to survive in this new era of care quality, if you're saving a hospital six-figure digits and you're going through all that work, 
Now, great, yes, they did the hospital a huge solid, and that hospital was very grateful and was going to send a lot more patients to them. But when you look at the slim margins of home health, one of the things I implore them to do is start thinking about it differently and in terms of how much value am I creating in this chain and what's a fair share for me and how can I demonstrate that value and how can I, how can I fight for it? So I think that's super important. And I guess there's a nursing shortage first, and then there's the, you know, the episodic fee-for-service structure. The nursing shortage, to me, is also related to those slim margins. To be successful in terms of maintaining a really strong workforce with nurses, reduce your turnover, have very highly trained, stable nursing workforce, I do think that the amount of pay that's given today is still out of whack with the demand and the other opportunities that that nursing staff has and the demand that the jobs place upon them. And so to me, there's just a fundamental issue of the amount of money that home health agencies have to pay for a nurse and the amount of money that nurses can command in the system in other settings. And a perfect example is a blue, this is years ago, uh, offered a rural home health agency, I think it was $36.50 a home health visit. And they were, they were a couple hours outside of Atlanta. And I just jokingly said to the hospital CFO, as hospital-owned home health agency, I said, I think dogs get groomed in Atlanta for more than that, you know? And the guy, the guy got really agitated. He said, I know, and they don't have to drive an hour each way to the dog. He said, I told them what they could do to their 3650. And I think a part of it is home health has to become more aggressive, not only in fee for service, but where there's a private payers of demonstrating their value and fighting for that value capture so that they can have better margins and, and, and begin to get those nurse wages back into a more conformity with what the market is offering. The other thing is, as you look at the evolution, yes, the fee-for-service, because the margins were slim, they made up for it a lot in volume. And not only that, but the fee-for-service created a somewhat perverse effect. There are times that home health will tell you that a patient should have received more episodes, but they may not have the available nurses, and they're afraid of a CMS audit because the structure that CMS has today with their audits and the way the auditors actually capture some of the revenue that they claw back from the home health agencies and hospices too, I, I don't think that's really the best policy out there. And I think that actually creates a perverse disincentive for home health agencies to give the number of episodes that sometimes a patient should really have. And a Z-pick is crippling and um, nobody wants it because they basically freeze your money and they start taking money back out of future payments. And with slim margins, you can't afford that. So I think that you have that perverse effect but you also, and this is one thing I'm really happy to see, is that I'm not sure that every home health visit needs to be in person. And so I think the leveraging of telehealth more and more and the reimbursement of that and the encouragement of that is going to be a great thing for home health agencies because it will allow them to be more efficient. The other side of it is I think that they need to really change the incentive structure away from fee-for-service and more to performance and really positioning those home health agencies as kind of the quarterbacks of, of care and taking a role in you know, what their care paths are because a lot of times a nurse can do the, the best care plan of all. And being able to, being empowered to do interventions if they're hospice appropriate, if there's a big issue, they should be start seeing a different specialist, empowering them and compensating them for taking a different mindset where they're really taking some responsibility for that overall patient's care path and care trajectory, I think is very important. And all of this, either, you know, in the example of telehealth, it creates new revenue streams, it also reduces costs. All of this will help them narrow that gap between what nurses can command in the field and what home health agencies are able to pay. I think all of that is really important to the future viability of, of home health agencies. 
And as I read between the tea leaves, a lot of times the issue of fraud is brought up for home health and hospice. I'm not sure that in the grand scheme of things, that is the primary driver. The, the primary driver to me is that it's possible that CMS sees home health or MedPAC sees home health taking unprofitable deals with private payers, and MedPAC never felt that it's their job to ensure the profitable viability of any of these care settings. But I think even beyond that, it comes down to consolidation. I think the ones that are making the decisions on home health reimbursement believe that there needs to be more consolidation in that industry. I can tell you there's over a thousand home health agencies in Florida and over 2000 in Texas. That's probably too many. And like SNFs and like other providers, consolidation, I think, is important to continue to survive in this industry. So I think that home health really needs to rethink how they structure their relationships and, to your point, capture more of the value. At the same time, they, they need to stand up and say, we're, we're not going to take these deals because they're not profitable for us. And we're really going to promote telehealth where possible and, and try to migrate from that fee-for-service episodic structure to more of an overall quarterback, if you will, for that patient's continued health and cost trajectory. Ian, here at the ACLC, we really believe that establishing a coordinated whole person care network across the post-acute care continuum is an essential element for organizations to successfully operate under value-based payment models and to optimize patient outcomes. We see so often that the traditional definition of PAC represents this legacy, fragmented approach to healthcare that segments care into silos. And it finances institutions to care for a slice of the patient instead of incentivizing whole person coordinated care. In 2019, we released an important white paper that we built with a cohort of industry professionals. And it provided a framework for transitioning to an integrated and coordinated care network model. And we established core competencies for a system of care for three target populations, those that are transitioning from acute care, optimizing quality of life and outcomes for those with advancing illness, and the population that are progressing through the final stages of life. As an industry, what can we do to support the urgent need for action to create high value coordinated care networks that are deeply rooted in leadership competencies necessary to bring about the transformation in the US post acute care sector? I have a very simple answer for that. Number one is, is really invest in understanding performance. And a lot of that is through data. It's not all data, but a lot of that is through data and really make an investment and putting a huge priority on all of your partnerships, including what you could say as alternative care settings, but also with your specialists and with your uh, hospitals as well. I think that the, the problems that you that you raise for the siloed care, it's the same for physicians and for hospitals as well. And I think that a really well-managed ACO will have made a huge investment in being very thoughtful and understanding performance and developing the optimal partnerships and really maintaining those partnerships. But I think they will also have made a significant investment in having care planners or case managers or whatever you want to say that are very actively involved in that patient's overall care plan and making sure that it's actually happening. And, you know, what we've seen, there was a survey a few years back from of hospital, like a thousand hospital discharge planners. And they said, why did you choose SNF? And they said, well, we know that someday they're going to be appropriate for long-term care, which was a terrible reason to select a care setting. And not only that, we found that they didn't have the basic education to know what services were provided in each of the settings. And so I think one thing ACOs can do is set up really robust care planning organizations that are heavily compensated in developing better outcomes and lower cost trajectories for their patients and really investing in those partnerships and giving those care planners the tools that they need at their disposal, both from data, both from partnerships and different solutions and tools to be able to develop really optimal care plans. And I think the more, uh, particularly as the acuity level goes up through these stages that you've just listed, these three stages, I think that 
the more time that is spent monitoring that patient and doing interventions where needed, where it is you're still smoking, we're going to enroll you in a smoking cessation class or give you some incentives for that, to this person is now appropriate for hospice. You know, I saw an example where an ACO used a solution where the solution mined the ACO data and determined hospice appropriateness. And the solution actually identified a lot of hospice appropriate patients that had slipped through the cracks. And you really want to address that because they're often your largest cost drivers. And so making an investment both in people and technology to really identify those patients and doing those interventions, I think is one of the key parts of breaking down those care silos to making sure that you're constantly monitoring those patients and making sure that their settings and interventions are appropriate. And I think the basis of that really comes from starting out with data, data that looks at the patient's status and the progression of that patient and the future outlook for that patient. But then also on the other side of the equation, how is my performance of my existing partners and what's the performance of, of other partners that would be better? And this is where we find a lot of ACOs say, well, I've got data from CMS already. And we say, well, you've got some data on your existing providers that you've worked with, but you don't have the data on the entire ecosystem in your geography to really know that very basic question of, is my network optimal? Am I sending the right patients to the right providers? And then the other portion of that question is, Am I identifying the right care? Am I identifying what patients need which settings? And in both cases, we often find that answer is no. So I think that it comes from two things, creating the staff, giving them the tools, and aligning incentives economically for them to want to have the healthiest patients possible with the lowest cost trajectories. So the ACOs and DCEs have different tools at their disposal, right? The DCEs have a lot more leeway in how they compensate their post-acute partners, including home health agencies. So you could literally set up, okay, I'm going to give you more leeway in what you think the right care plan is for this patient. And I will give you, this is the amount this patient cost last year or this type of patient. If you're able to drive that down for me over time, not just with your setting, but with all care, then guess what? I'm going to compensate you. I'm going to share some of those savings with you. If it's done right and the incentives are adequate and a transparency is there and the home health agency can see the, the means to get there, that this is feasible, I think you'll see a, a very robust participation and partnership on the part of the home health agencies. ACOs obviously don't have the same level of flexibility, but what ACOs can do is they can give that home health agency more leeway in the number of episodes and in the type of episodes. And they can also assure that home health agency that those patients will be earned. And if they are earned, they, they will see them. So I think the ACO has a lot of tools at their disposal. The other thing I would say the ACO should do is continually share data for the home health agency versus its peers on performance, both for the ACO and overall. Uh, you will find that sharing the right type of data with partners can go a long, long ways. The other thing that I would say is promoting those patients for good care transitions and finding ways to kind of help reduce the burden on some of the home health activities. So, you know, home health has slimmer margins. And one thing that an ACO is really good at is taking the burden off of certain administrative tasks for the physicians and helping them maximize revenue and be able to spend more time doing what they love, which is caring for the patients. The referral process and the documentation process for a home health agency can be a nightmare of faxes back and forth and chasing down doctors. If you're able to say, just as one example, we're going to reduce a lot of the friction in that process so that you can spend more time doing what you do best, which is caring for those patients, and we're going to tell you how you're doing, and if you're doing well and you meet these expectations, you're going to get more patients, I think you've created a very powerful incentive for that home health agency just by doing that. 
Well, Ian, we've had an amazing conversation today, and I know our value-based care listeners out there, those physicians and executives and interdisciplinary people that are really driving uh, patient, uh, improved patient outcomes are going to be so much better for having uh, learned from today's conversation. And as we wrap up our interview today, I, I wanted to talk about the moral imperative to value-based care and why that's important to you. I mean, we all know about the economic imperative and all those associated stats from us approaching 20% of our GDP and we're 11,500 per capita spend, which is more than twice of the second country. And we have a looming Medicare insolvency date and on and on and on. But we don't really talk about as much the moral imperative to value-based care. And on your company website, you're quoted as saying, how can we trust our loved ones to a system that doesn't have the transparency and accountability for performance? I wanted to land on that as a parting thought. What does value-based care mean to you personally? And how does that drive you as a leader? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I do also, by the way, view it as a moral imperative to reduce the expenditures that we have, because I think that it is hurting the opportunities that should be available to our younger people. And I think it's putting our youth in a very precarious position going forward. I think that, you know, overtaxing youth to provide very costly benefits for the elderly is in, in a very inefficient way, I think is doing a disservice to the future of our country. And so ways to improve that and reduce that waste so that we can invest in, in business and education and environment and equal access. If the resources are going to healthcare and waste in healthcare, they're not going to other things. And so I, I feel a moral imperative on that side as well. But to your point, you know, this is our nation's most vulnerable. And I'm so glad that we've now have access to the Medicaid data as well, because, you know, the, the ones that I view most vulnerable are our elderly and our, our children. And for me to be able to hold the entire healthcare system accountable for how these two groups are treated is very, very important. I believe that it is a paramount moral imperative that we take care of those that don't have the same level of access or power to be able to stand up and make sure that the right thing is, is being done. And the way we treat both of these groups and how we care for them is a very important reflection on our society. And I strongly believe that everyone should have access to coverage and good quality healthcare. And what is very important is to be able to hold these providers and payers accountable for what type of quality of care those groups are receiving and to make sure that there's no gross negligence or abuse, which can also happen. I think it comes down to first and foremost, aligning economic incentives. I think that, that the, the pay is out of whack and the jobs are incredibly stressful and the amount of resources that they have is often not large enough. But by beginning to shine light on how different entities are performing, and that includes the payers, by the way, we have that ability as well, I think is the first step in driving uh, accountability and innovation and improvement in performance. And I, I just have to reiterate that if we want to judge ourselves as a good society and as good people, we need to do right by those that are the most vulnerable. Well, Ian, I, I could not agree more. And thank you for your leadership in the industry. And I know those ACOs and direct contracting entities and other risk-bearing groups that are really looking for solutions and post-acute care optimization have a great resource in you. How can those listeners out there find out more about Trella Health? The easiest thing is just to go to our, our website. It's Trella Health. It's T-R-E-L-L-A health.com. And we have a wealth of resources there that we make available to the, to the industry about post-acute. And we're increasing what we offer about ACOs. We have a lot of materials there. We have a lot of materials on ACOs and post-acute. 
if anyone comes to the website, it's very easy to request a demo. I, I would just say, why? You know, why wouldn't you do it? If you want to be develop the best, highest performing network you can provide, and you want to find great opportunities to grow through physician partnerships, why wouldn't you look at us? If nothing else, it'll be incredibly informative and help you make the right decision when you do make the decision to invest in data. And I would say to, to every ACO out there that's listening, you've got to invest in data and you don't have to do it with us per se, but you've got to make an investment in somebody and you've got to take the time to look at those different solutions. Don't rush into a, don't rush into a decision per se, but take your time and look at what your options are out there and the best path for you will become apparent. Ian Giuliano, Chief Executive Officer of Trella Health, thanks so much for joining us this week on The Race to Value. Thank you.